From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, with your hosts, with your hosts, with your hosts, with your hosts. Welcome, everybody, to episode 168 of the Killing It <laughs> podcast. And uh, shout out, thanks to Nye for uh, adding special effects during the Halloween season. <laughs> She's having good fun with us, so I look forward to hearing her next uh, endeavors with us. We hope the listeners are having fun because we're having fun with the theater of the mind. All right, well, while we're on the the Halloween theme for this month, while you're thinking about the ghouls and the goblins and the gargoyles, gents, what do you want etched onto your tombstone? So I actually have an answer for this one. I've been preparing this for years. I I want a simple statement that cursed is anyone who would attempt to dig up my bones and rebury them at Westminster Hall. This is actually what Shakespeare has on his tomb okay. at Stratford because everybody famous is either, you know, at the Tower of London or at uh, Westminster Cathedral. So I, I just want to, you know, see if anybody picks up that it's a reference to Shakespeare. See, I, I was going to say, Carl, I, you have an encyclopedia of excellent puns. So I was thinking you might go the direction of a particularly tasteful death. I think maybe you need to have multiple statements on your thing. See, my problem is I've been thinking about this. I I have, I'm working on a playlist, right? For like the celebration of life after the effect. I I want to be the pre-DJ. And and these are the songs that I want people to listen to when when we go through this. Uh, Neither of you is surprised that I can't possibly think of a statement brief enough that would fit etched on a tombstone so I'm, I'm still struggling with that one because i got like i got like passages and quotes and all of that stuff but if i can put like a qr code on there that will be a link there you go. to my playlist oh that, that awesome. might be the right thing to have like an etched marble qr code See? do that and then when you come in it brings the atmosphere of the music with you when you're there paying your respects so it's funny because I have not given this much thought, I will admit. Uh, <laughs> I have given more thought to my obituary of late, particularly because I've had family stuff that has required more of that for, for older people. For my tombstone, I literally just, this is going to be a little schmaltzy, but like literally I just was thinking the, the only thing that I care about it would be somebody cared enough to say he was a good man. Like I literally just like at the end, like the only thing that you want to be remembered for was how you treated people. And I hope people remember that I, that I was a good person Uh, because, you know, in in the perfect world, I'm going out with my wife. So it doesn't matter. Like, like acknowledging her is important to me, but I'll be gone and she'll be gone theoretically. So I don't know for me, it comes, it really does sort of come down to like good, good man. If if people view it as that way, I will feel well, very that's vindicated. certainly how I would like to be remembered, uh, which is why I'm probably going to be cremated and there just won't be a tombstone, so it doesn't matter. Hackett returns this November with Hackett 2022. It's a hands-on interactive cybersecurity training designed to help you think like a hacker and provide you with security training you can use today to level up 
your own defenses. Join Huntress co-founder and CEO Kyle Hensloven, Huntress threat researchers, and soon-to-be-announced special guests for two and a half days of cybersecurity education for the community by the community. Content over three days, including an optional lab, and it's all virtual. Attend from your desk, couch, swing set, or wherever you are most comfortable. Sign up at hack-it.com. Topic one, we're going to look at some juicy statistics, and uh, we've got a great article, 25 Trending Tech Industry Stats from Zipia. Um, and actually, uh, it, it, despite the Zipia name, I think there's some really interesting stuff here. To me, the most, the single most depressing piece of this is the fact that the number of women in IT is not only not growing, but shrinking as a percentage of those employed in IT. And the, the most impressive stat overall is the number of vacancies in our industry, which we've often said, oh, you know, we need an extra million people uh, for security. But the, the final stat on this article is that there are at least 3.97 million tech jobs available and we don't have enough people to fill them. And that's that we're going to come back to that in this show. But that's an alarming shortage of personnel. So those are the two stats I most found interesting in this. What about you guys? See, and, and I will build off of that, Carl, because I, as a person who has worked an entire lifetime in the technology industry, I'm often guilty of thinking, well, I've been in technology forever. Everybody that I know is in technology that dot, dot, dot. Therefore, everybody in the world works in the technology industry. It is very refreshing to be reminded every now and then that we're, A, as the statistics show, 10.5% of GDP and in the single digits of the actual humans that are involved in technology, more than nine out of 10 humans in the United States do not do technology for a living. The thing that I found in these statistics, if you if you want to read the storyline among them, is it is high time that we of technical backgrounds and jargon and expertise need to remember that nine out of ten of the people who we, A, serve as customers and B, who pay us as clients, they don't know what we know. It's not fair to think, well, we said MSP, and that means they knew what we meant by that, because I was reminded this week, again, hat tip to the real world, uh, they don't know what that acronym stands for. There's so many people who are our audience who listen to what will tech do and how will it drive the future and what is the impact on every other line of business because of tech, and yet almost all, literally, statistically speaking, Almost all decision makers do not know what the heck we're talking about. And I think it's on us to learn to speak English or insert language of your, your locale, right? It's on us to speak regular language, not on them to learn our weird jargon. All right. I had a, I had a couple of interesting takeaways. And, and so, Carl, I, I, I also noted what you did on, on the, the male-female. I also noticed the... Uh, underrepresentation for for black or African Americans, and and by the way, that parallels data that I'm putting out on business of tech around the leadership teams. You know, 
data data looks a lot alike. So I, I definitely noted that myself. There were a couple of other things that I noted. First of all, I actually thought Europe was slightly bigger than the, than they are by this tech industry distribution. Europe representing twenty two percent of the market, uh, North America at thirty five percent, and Asia at thirty two percent. I actually thought Europe was a little bit bigger, so I thought that that was interesting. They're definitely punching above their weight from a regulation perspective because of their impact, despite their the, the revenue number being smaller. And I thought that was interesting but to see. Is, like, well, it's also interesting to say they're, they're it's that big and they're willing to take on that monster rather yes. than saying, oh, well, <laughs> yeah, like because it's easy to, to regulate an industry that's 1% of your GDP. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I also thought it was no really risk. interesting that, that that correlation of the U.S. tech industry accounting for 35% of the total market, like, and, and the way it played out in jobs. But, but there were two other details that I thought were interesting. First off, it is notable that uh, the the way the population distribution works to show it in like it is in certain geographies and they highlight you know for example that massachusetts only has about four hundred forty thousand tech workers compared to california's 1.86 million but that's they also have a smaller population and thus there are more tech workers based on the total population living right. in massachusetts California and Virginia are also close seconds with roughly 5% of their population. So, like, if you think about it from a concentration of tech workers, like, you know, you sort of look and go, oh, California, Virginia, Massachusetts, like, the that's where it is concentrated. I definitely know I feel that. I live in Virginia. I happen to live in northern <laughs> Virginia, right? So I live right in the bit of that. Yes, I feel that concentration myself. And so I th that was another detail that I thought was interesting about the geographies. It's interesting to look at it on raw numbers. Uh, but looking at it on that take was something that that I really wanted to jump into, um, and then no, and and then you know the, then the other thing that I also noted in, was the the demographics on age, and I'll give the listeners some insight. I've been spending actually a lot of time recently thinking about this um, because they noted that fifty five percent of tech employees are forty years years older or older. Um, okay. We have an aging group of you know, population of industry expertise. Um, I'll speak to mine. I am 47, right? And so I'm. I look at, it, but I think about that in terms of if I assume if I'm 47 and I'm probably going to retire unless some miraculous event, right? <laughs> in terms of a buyout or something like that. But but if I have to work as a career, I'm working another 20 years, right? 67 being a very standard quote unquote retirement age. I have an opportunity and my age limit to be a, a fundamental leader to younger generation of tech workers for a very long ramp where those 50 and 60 somethings are going to retire obviously earlier than me. And I've been thinking a lot about that positioning from a engineering leadership perspective. And I think it's kind of interesting because we may in a way like the three of us represent different stages in that uh, evolution. I'm on the young end for that one. And so it looked and said, like, that's an interesting position. Anybody who's in their 40s right now in tech is is kind of interestingly, uniquely positioned to ride that leadership growth because there will and should be more young entrants into this space. Well, see, David, I'll take that a step further, right? To combine where Carl started and where you wound up there. Um, it is no. It is never too soon for somebody in the tech industry. 
to think of themselves as a mentor or a leader to invite in other people. Because just do the math, right? Carl, you, you emphasized there's nearly 4 million open positions today in the business of technology. And if we say there's technology industry jobs and then there are technology occupations, right? Sellers and customers, right? If you put that together, the total number of that, according to these statistics, is ish 15 million humans in the United States who do technology for a living. And then there's 4 million open positions. Now, if you think of the proportionality there, that's 25% increase that there is, it's taken us from the dawn of the idea of technology until today to get to 15 million humans. And as of yesterday, we need another 4 million. In a year, it'll be more. Five years, it will be more than that. The natural organic evolution of our population of technology professionals, at the pace we're currently going, it's mathematically impossible for us to catch up. That's a big deal. We'd better be out there. You, know, like, you should be recruiting all of your friends to be technology. Well, I'm going to move. I'm going to move us on. I'm going to move us on to topic two, and I'm going to say that say we may be putting them all in the metaverse, right? So, <laughs> so let's 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 like that for a segue, guys. So Meta just hosted their big announced uh, announcements, and they had their Connect Week this week, and their biggest headline announcement uh, was their new VR headset, the new Quest Pro at fourteen ninety nine. Uh, and so the, 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 there's a lot of interesting stuff. I, I dug into this and, and I think I'll actually say that my analysis of, of their announcement is that I think they are looking just for modest investment here. This is a developer product more than I think this is a mainstream product. This is designed to help get enterprise developers thinking about what they can do with this tech, particularly because if you cross-reference that with some of the reporting that's come out recently about the teams working at Meta on Horizon Worlds who are uh, less than enthused by their pro own product, um, <laughs> you know, there, there's there's definitely some, some space here. Okay, but at this milestone, like there's a big milestone, I'm gonna throw it to you guys for, for your take, right? Like, are we, are we at it? It's a thing yet? Is this, this a major milestone, a minor milestone, not at all relevant? Where, so, where did, what was your take when you saw this? I would just say, so as somebody who, you know, one of my hobbies is to get on YouTube and watch old videos about the evolution of this technology and that technology and so forth. There are people who see something new and say, uh, that doesn't have a place or that's not going to work or here's the problems with that. And there's other people who look at the exact same technology and say, oh my God, the world will never be the same again. Because they see not the thing in front of them, but the industry that will become, uh, will emerge because of this technology. And I think that's what Meta is trying to get people to see is that it's not this thing. This thing, you know, it, it's sort of like the first watch was about the size of a clock and you strapped it to your wrist, right? <laughs> but then it, then it gets smaller. You, you have to be able to see this will get smaller or will be integrated into normal glasses and, and Mark Zuckerberg will not look like a dork forever. Okay, that last part might not well, be true. <laughs> yeah, it depends on whether you're inside or outside of the metaverse, right? Um, see, my observation <laughs> here is <laughs> true. <laughs> Good point. Um, see, my observation is the thirstiness of the promotional messages that are coming from the meta crowd. Um, do a little math for me, right? 
uh, total population on Facebook, right? It might be yesterday's technology. It might be where grandma and grandpa go to communicate with their grandchildren. We might have whatever feelings we have about Facebook, but there are ish 3 billion unique monthly users on Facebook. Do we know what the number is on Horizon Worlds, the, the, the centerpiece, the crown jewel of the metaverse today? It's about 300,000. And that's not distinct humans. That's it's some fishy metric that they're using to indicate the number of logins, essentially, that, that are happening over there. Um, 300,000 compared to 3 billion. And yet, if you read the article that we're linking to in the show notes, uh, the quote from the leader, who the guy who owns this in the world of Meta and is talking about it, his comment was, we don't know exactly how long it will take to achieve full distribution in the marketplace, but we are confident that we are beyond the elbow of the curve in rapid acceleration. If 300,000 is the elbow in the curve, you're never going to get to 3 billion. It's like the math just literally never adds up. And to your point, Dave, the memos from leaders inside the organization begging or requiring employees of Meta to use it and for managers to track the number of logins of their employees because they don't want to log in because they're not having a good experience. My ultimate takeaway on this, right? And Dave, you, you kind of touched on it. $300 for a device from Meta that you and I might buy and use out there. $1,500 for this new pro version, you're not going to get massive adoption here. You might get developers who are going to build reasons that we will ultimately come here. But even the people who are super enthusiastic, right? Like I, I one of the articles that we've linked to here, he loves it and he agrees that, that VR is a thing and it will be the future and fully bought in on the concept that, that VR is going to change the world. And at the end of it, he goes, oh, and by the way, there's still that minor issue of, I wouldn't call it nausea that I had after I used it. It was more akin to the feeling of that you get when you read a book in the backseat of a bumpy car ride. And I was like, dude, that's what they call nausea. And if that's still, that's the dictionary definition of that. And if that is legitimately still the physical sensation you get out of this thing, there is no use case that I can possibly imagine that will achieve mass market coverage and adoption until they figure out some of those existential questions, right? I see the universal business applications. I see the benefits in, in manufacturing. It's never going to become mainstream if it's still car sick. So let me let me observe something that you, you actually sort of said, like mainstream. Okay, well, what is mainstream? And the, the, hidden within this noise was another set of announcements that I think is the one I want to highlight as well, is that Microsoft is in fact partnered with Meta to bring Teams, Office, Windows, and Xbox to the platform. This, told, this was two takeaways that I thought were interesting here. The first was just the... Meta is not going to try and do everything, right? That they they have recognized that we're not going to necessarily do everything, and so the the importance of the work layer bring the people that specialize in there. The second is is that it actually spoke to Microsoft's strategy so strongly of be in all the places, right? They are now delivering services on whatever platform you want those services on. 
You use a Mac, you use an iPad, no problem. You use, you know, iPhone, like you use an iPhone, no problem. You use Android, no problem. And now use Meta VR, no problem. Microsoft wants a world where Azure powers the whole back end, where their front end is their services, and they're happy being everywhere. And I thought that was that opens up a space that at least circle and say, if you're looking for one, there's at least one that might be it's relevant. It's a legitimate strategy, but I have to say, Microsoft is also taking every piece of junk they find and throwing it into teams. And I think a lot of that stuff is just going to become unused pieces of detritus inside of teams. I think the real need is that there has to be a killer app. And so far we haven't found it. The weird thing about Facebook being so big and actually having a platform where they could within their platform, create a killer app that people cannot live without and say, hey, you have to fall in love with this and the way to fall in love with it is you need a headset. The other thing is, why aren't they giving away this thing to programmers for free? In which case, millions of people who you normally don't include in your R&D are going to suddenly start creating things and one of them might pop, so. Well, to be, to be fair, we don't know that, right? If you, if you put out a product, you put an MSRP on it and you make it available. And on the back end, you may be delivering them to developers or paying for them or buying them out. Oh, that may be. That may be. We so, so we don't, to, to be fair, we don't know they're not doing that. Yeah, we, we don't know those things. But again, very practical strategies from both of you guys. Uh, the, the ultimate question you started with, though, Dave, was, is it a thing? And the answer is, if they're satisfied with 300 unique monthly users and calling that a business, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's cash value is going to continue. <laughs> To decline radically, so they they need more, and it ain't there. I think they're yet. only satisfied that they're heading in the right direction. So uh, sadly, we're out of time. On that. Okay, so uh, topic number three, sirs. There's been a Thor sighting in the world. Now, not that, not the very muscular blonde individual in the MCU, but an actual product out there in the world. T H O R, tactical humanitarian operations response vehicle. It is the name, the acronym for a very large bright red Ford F650 pickup truck that is both a mobile uh, satellite and a Wi-Fi device that can project 5G into the world, as well as a coordinating station for all of the emergency services that might be needed in a natural disaster. Now, the reason for this thing appearing in the world obviously and unfortunately, is the massive devastation that happened in South Florida as a result of Hurricane Ian. That was, that was a terrible situation, and yet it showcased a pretty fascinating piece of technology that is in that devastated part of the country actually providing a remarkable valuable service, right? They're, they're bringing connectivity, both for emergency services workers, as well as for citizens in a place that used to have internet connectivity, and now suddenly, unfortunately, does not. I want to take it a step further, though, right? Not just in Florida, not just as the result of a hurricane. This strikes me as a massive opportunity. On this show, we've talked at length about gaps in coverage and internet access for uh, rural or remote populations. We've talked about the, uh, the technological divide that exists for remote workers and whether or not people in certain circumstances can actually participate. I see this as not just something that Verizon would do at the mega level, but something that 
technology professionals in local applications can actually bring to their marketplace to plug those gaps. Um, a, what'd you think about the service that is currently being provided in a big bright red pickup truck? And B, where do you see this kind of hyper-local internet connectivity going in the future? All right, so I'm gonna dis- I'm gonna disagree and go like so I I don't I don't see the opportunity for small for small offerings for this because the capital expenditure on this is just feels like it's so expensive to sit and wait for the occasional disaster. I see there might be a hybrid of that where a comp- where a big telco Verizon's and stuff make that available to partners for you know a certain kind of use or it's available on demand, but this feels like the kind of thing that you need just such a large large org with the capital resources to keep a number of these things just waiting right like it's that's a that's a lot of money to put on the sideline to wait now yes for ever increasing disasters but at the same time that's a lot of money sitting in a garage to only go running around the country a couple of times a year and so so I look at this and I go, where I don't understand the economics enough to know where the balance is, where that this is a viable part of the service, or do you do it just for continuity and it, you essentially have to have it right at some level in order to provide the level of response required to restore service? Somebody needs to explain to me the economics because that feels like the important bit. It's I mean cool tech, right? Like I'm I'm super on board. I just don't understand the business enough to be able to make a call there. Well, I would I would note two things. First of all, uh, the Red Cross has for decades have these monstrous bands that have every kind of communications equipment you could possibly imagine so that they can connect. They can, they can take one of the things, drop it anywhere in the U.S. and be able to connect all the local services and get things back up and going, even if the police or the fire don't have their own communication system going add internet to that and you've got basically this truck and that truck merged together second thing i would note is if you recall superstorm sandy left much of new york without internet connectivity for two weeks this puts that back in perspective and you're like okay if there are going to be more superstorm sandys uh if there's going to be storms that start in the uh caribbean and make their way up to nova scotia (laughs) right uh, having a handful of these sitting around waiting, uh, you know, probably for a tanker truck to deliver them or for a tanker plane to deliver them where they need to go um, is really a good thing. Um, but my guess is the best use of it is probably donate those things to the Red Cross and let them figure out where to stage them. See, and I will take this again, Dave, to your point on economics and Carl, to your point on use cases. I will take this into a radically larger quantity conversation. The economics of this, right? A truck plus, uh, we've had conversations in the past about Microsoft submerging a data center in the ocean, self-contained, eliminating all of the HVAC costs, whatever. Uh, If you take your Red Cross example, Carl, and, and the massive communications infrastructure and equipment that exists in those, this is the miniaturization of a data center in a box and it happens to live on wheels. It literally could be deployed anywhere, anytime. It begins a couple of years ago with the idea of school buses in rural districts around the United States getting the brilliant idea of deploying 
a hotspot, a wireless network connection router on school buses, and they're going out and parking them in various places in the community. Not only was this connectivity for students on their ride to and from school, but they could go park it in a store parking lot, a church parking lot, somewhere in the community where people fundamentally did not have high-speed internet connectivity, and they could bring it to the people as needed, and it was bridging temporarily a gap in the services. If you take that business model, you, A, will get more superstorms. Unfortunately, we're going to live in that world. And then, B, the concentration of groups like in stadiums or in festivals, in temporary clusters of mass quantities of human beings that just cannot get good quality service, you take all three of those things and you put them in something the size of a pickup truck for less than $100,000 of capital expenditure, you could put the internet anywhere and everywhere immediately when it's needed and A, charge for that on an as-needed basis in terms of the persistent use cases, but then in emergency situations where the answer is, New York City or Fort Myers, Florida, or anywhere in between suddenly doesn't have internet or voice connectivity for a period of weeks following one of these storms, the urgency factor on those drives up the price point radically. I think all 50 states in every rural and edge case urban or suburban situation needs one of these things, and, and you will more than justify the continuous subscription as well as the upside for the emergency situation. So I'll say, like, I hope there's listeners out there that go, oh, okay, I get this, and can figure out a way to do this. I'm not that guy, right? I haven't figured it out. <laughs> but I do hope, like, that, that you that there there's some listeners saying, like, okay, I get it, I get the model, and I know exactly how I'm going to go forth and make some money with that. I will observe, like, in a way, that, I mean, it's, it is essentially anti-cloud, right? Because uh, in the cloud, you're trying to push as much of the capital expenditure in, up into somebody else's. Here's Here you're trying to pull everything down into a distinctly non-scalable resource. That is a different economic model. Yep. Two, two tiny yes. little notes before we go. One is this thing is not the size of a pickup truck. A pickup truck could fit in the... <laughs> back bed of this pickup the truck. back of this thing <laughs> so it's a the very cool is, truck back to the first article of the day uh one of the stats was that 90 percent of americans have the internet and 10 percent do not the problem is that 10 percent doesn't live in one spot they are spread out into the the furthest you know regions uh you know away from a city center so uh, this isn't the answer for them either you know sadly well no it's not but dave to your Dave, just one quick observation to your point. This is this is not the anti-cloud. This is the cloud in your town, right? This brings it to you and at the time when you mo might most desperately need access to it. So, uh, so your cloud in a small. big red pickup truck. Big red, big red truck. Pickup cool truck. <laughs> <laughs> and sadly, now I can say that will bring us to the end of episode 168 of the Killing It <laughs> podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It Podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.